welcome to McLean's Pop Culture Podcast, Thrill, for the week of May 22nd. On this week's show, Comedy of Hers, the show inside Amy Schumer is proving that you can be a feminist and be popular in the world of comedy. But just how hard is it to be a female comic these days? We'll talk to comedian Diana Bailey about the tricky path of making feminism funny. A Doc Daughter, we'll chat with Rebecca Mazels, whose late father Albert was considered an innovator in the documentary field, about her dad and their documentary, Iris. And The Means to an End, the series finale of AMC's Mad Men was watched by more than 3 million viewers, and of course, it proved to be divisive. Is there a right way to end a TV series anymore? I'm Adrian. I'm Emma. And I'm Julia. And this is The Thrill. Every once in a while, a comedian comes along that seems to tap into what we've been wanting to say, but didn't know how to say it. Louis C.K. and his optimistic existentialism, Jon Stewart's satirical news, Tina Fey's sardonic super nerd, Liz Lemon. Recently, Amy Schumer has been getting a lot of lips flapping. She's the host of Inside Amy Schumer, a sketch comedy show where she inserts different versions of herself into scenarios as she tries to navigate a man's world, like the hypocritical complexities of what it means to be a cool girl that can hang with the guys, or the absurd one-upmanship women sometimes engage in where compliments are deflected to appear modest. Great, you dyed your hair. It looks amazing. Oh, no, you're just being nice. No, seriously, it looks great. No, I tried to look like Kate Hudson, but ended up looking like a golden retriever's dingleberry. <laughs> but you, look at your cute little dress. Little? I'm like a size 100 now. Anyway, I paid like $2 for it. It's probably made out of old Burger King crowns. I look like a whore locked out of her apartment. Hi. Amy. Hi. 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 I love your hat. Uh, are you drunk? I look like an Armenian man. People are trying to buy carpets from me. What zeitgeist exactly is Amy Schumer hitting? With us to discuss today, we have comedian Diana Bailey. She's performed all over, including Second City, and has shared a stage with Maria Bamford, among others. Thanks for being here, Diana. Thank you for having me. So what do you think about what Amy Schumer is up to these days? I'm just, I'm so happy that there is somebody like Amy Schumer who is uh, getting the mainstream success that she is, because she's so funny and her stuff is very feminist without being very political, uh, you know what I mean? Like, it really speaks to being a woman without kind of being preachy or, like, South Parky about it. And I find that the stu- the sketches that she does, I really, uh, I really relate to a lot. Funny yeah. that you mentioned that it's not political, because I think nothing political is really funny. I feel like when something enters into an explicitly political territory, it just ceases to be funny. And I think that's kind of the key to her success. Yeah, it's like very subversive stuff that's kind of wrapped up in like a drunk girl at the party kind of persona. But uh, and like when I first started listening to Amy Schumer stand up, I was kind of like, uh, this is a bit like Chelsea Handlerish. Like, uh, you get drunk so much and I have so much sex. Yeah, but she's like, been a, called a like a raunchy comedian, kind of like Chelsea Handler, Sarah Silverman, like yeah. in that vein. Yeah, but when she started doing the sketch show, it was like, whoa, like it, it had so much more depth that I think at least her initial stand-up had, the stuff that I started listening to. Right. And she, and as I mentioned, she has been called uh, a raunchy female comedian, very specifically, like uh, Chelsea Handler, like Sarah Silverman. And there's kind of this question floating around, like, is it actually progress for female comedians to outgross male comedians? Sometimes I get kind of tired of, of that... Uh, role for female comedians because I think a lot of, like if you think about a lot of the fa- famous like successful female comedians it's like uh, you know I'm a big lady and that's my thing or like I uh, I 
drink and I have sex with a lot of guys and that's my thing. There are very few comedians who are female who are just kind of like Louis C.K., like an every woman type of figure. So... I think, like I said, like at first I thought Amy Schumer was kind of playing at being like a, a broad, you know? Mm-hmm. But I think that more and more with the sketches, she's kind of moving into that every woman's social commentary kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think I think there is a lot of, uh, there There certainly is, you know, the desire, and I think we're, you know, going to get there one day. It sounds ridiculous to say, but like that women comedians could just be comedians. Like we don't have to, call, we don't right. have to use that as an adjective. Totally. But uh, but in in some ways right now, there what what is impressive to me about, Amy Schumer uh, and that show is the, the sort of infiltrative quality of it uh, in the same way that say like Key and Peele is it, you, there's stuff you can do with sketch that you can't really do with other stuff and the way that uh, inside Amy Schumer uh, talks about you know stuff about like portrayal of women or rape or you know in the, ver- in the first episode of this uh, of this season uh, there's just a, a funny interview with a trans woman uh, and this is on a channel that, uh, on Comedy Central that does skew young male and white uh, you know the, this is for a lot of people this is going to be the first interview you're going to see with like a transgender person because uh, this was before the you know the major Bruce Jenner thing uh, Key and Peele the same way you know th- that's a funny show but it also deals with racial politics and we're seeing we're seeing things you know we're making people watch something that they may not otherwise go seek out. And I think there's a lot of value in that. And that's what's impressive to me about Amy Schumer is that it's doing so well uh, on a channel that still skews, still skews male, still skews young. And it's so funny. Yeah. Like, like to Emma's point, like it's not just that it's subversive or that it's kind of groundbreaking or changing the scene. It's so funny and it does it in such a funny way. And it makes a lot of really tough topic palatable and funny. Like, yeah, the idea that they would do a sketch about like military rape, like, mm-hmm. and they made it really good, and it was funny, and it wasn't demeaning to anybody, and it. I think it also kind of flies in the face of this idea of like the PC comedian of like, oh, because of the politically correct agenda, we can't say the things that we used to say anymore, and we our hands are tied. I think Amy Schumer really proves that. You know, you don't need to do all that lazy stuff to be really funny. And, like, you can approach all of these topics in a really funny way without being offensive to people and without hurting people's feelings. Yeah, I think the key to that, you know, Emma and I have discussed this before about how some people think perhaps, like, feminists aren't funny. They consider them kind of dour or political satire or Mm -hmm. politics are not particularly funny. I think she's got two things going for her in that regard is that she um she's got a, a pythonian like absurdity like she's really silly while she kind of gives you her medicine uh, you know like there's this skit she does where she is uh, pretending to be a female celebrity on a late night talk show. Oh, I love that sketch. Right. Yeah. And as you, it, it cuts away and then it cuts back to her and ever s- slowly, like her legs are becoming more gilded and like gold cream until they like shine <laughs> and blind you. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's just it's that's a silly thing, but it's a small thing that kind of. It means something bigger than what it's getting at. But I think um, also the, the politics or the, the medicine aspect of being able to absorb things like that, like the silliness with the sharp satire, um, uh, certainly like John Stewart does that in his in his satirical news. And Dave Chappelle used to do the, the same thing. He had something called the racial draft sketch where it was about like people who are um, – uh, interracial, what um, race was going to claim them as their own, like Lenny Kravitz and Tiger Woods. And we got the Wu-Tang Clan. <laughs> yeah. so nailed it. By we, he means Asians, yep. not just Adrian. Well. <laughs> okay. And uh, and I think actually, and, and what her and Louis C.K. do when they discuss things that are political is they don't really focus on the victim. So in like that military sketch, for example, it's more about uh, not what happened to the person, but how like there's these strange 
ingrained social attitudes that we we have and that we use right. like she's got that Friday Night Lights yeah. sketch about where it's like don't rape and everyone's like what no oh. raping but coach we play football my team my rules you don't like it don't let the door rape you on the way out can we rape in away games no nope. what if it's Halloween and she's dressed like a sexy cat nope what if she thinks it's rape but I don't still no what about, like, a, a sexy ladybug? Oh, yeah. Mm. Nope. <laughs> a ghost? What about a sexy owl? Not just the, the team members, but the whole town is, like, scandalized by this, and that's the humor. It's not about the person that has been raped, but about, like, everybody thinks that that's a normal thing to do. Yeah. And her Connie Britton impersonation. Oh, my God, so it was so good. good. <laughs> so I think she's got less finger-pointing and more, like... When we focus the microscope on this aspect of the human ecosystem, all these tiny social oddities make this bizarre. And doesn't this suck everybody? Like, you know, like nobody yeah. is, we're, everyone's implicit as opposed to one mm -hmm. group. Because when you point fingers, people are like, hey, not me. Don't. That's why people don't like the idea of white privilege because nobody mm -hmm. likes to have to own up to something. So it's just like, look, okay, maybe fine. I You're just not don't ready like for that? Buzzwords. <laughs> cool. But I think what she's getting Check at. Check your privilege. <laughs> is more like, look what all of these small things did and how crap it is over here for women. Yeah. I think what also, sorry, makes it so groundbreaking is that you could argue like Amy Poehler, Tina Fey are, are feminist comedians, or they are comedians who happen to be feminist and mm -hmm. sometimes touch on feminist issues, but Amy Poehler's comedy is explicitly feminist. Right. Like the moral of the story behind all of her most popular sketches right now are feminist morals and mm -hmm. I think that's pretty groundbreaking yeah. something we I think haven't really to seen to that before. point too it's it's not even that it's just explicitly feminist it's that like her sketches are for women it is comedy that is designed for mm -hmm. women like the like the hello m'lady sketch where like uh, these kind of weak-willed sad men kind of glom onto women and act like they're their boyfriends and show up uh, uh, and give them flowers and then turn on them and act really aggressive like that is a sketch that a lot of women can relate to right. and that is very explicitly for women mm -hmm. and you know uh even doing stand-up now like there will be times where uh i'll do certain jokes and they kill in front of rooms that have you know a pretty 50 50 split but uh in rooms where it's just men it just goes over like a lead balloon like they just do not get it at all so mm -hmm. to make a show especially on comedy central that has such a young male viewership that's mm -hmm for women is like pretty radical yeah like, it, that women it, like comedy and like will go to see comedy it's the idea that like you know feminism is for still <laughs> implausibly for for so many people still like a scary word uh she's managed to turn feminism into like a human thing you know the 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 thrust of that friday night lights thing was that it's not like it's just it's just an insane thing to rape like it's not that's <laughs> right. not like a feminism masculinism anything that's just like what and an insane like, thing to defend just, as yeah, a community as like, like a human it, just as humans right and that's the point right that. it's like Diana, I want to ask you about your own comedy, though. Uh, you know, how sure. much, how much, uh, you know, in your own uh, comedy do you do you try to like be more than just like a woman who does comedy, but say like, hey, I've got, you know, I, this is a feminist comedy material. I, I think all of my comedy is informed by that viewpoint. Like, I think it's it's difficult to separate, you know, me and my feminism, mm -hmm. you know, creatively. And I think. Uh, you know, a lot of comedy is pointing out the absurdities of social mores and society. And mm -hmm. like when you are coming at it from uh, 
the perspective of a woman who sees how crappy it is for women, then I think a lot of feminism is going to come out of that naturally. What do, what do female comedians talk about when they talk shop about being a woman mm-hmm. in this industry? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we I've been a part of a lot of gab sessions <laughs> with the girls about how awful it is to be a female comic. Not that it's awful, but, mm-hmm. like, it's just, it's tough. Um, and, you know, a lot of times, you know, after, like, a bad show or whatever, you, you'll you sit at the bar and, like, grab a beer and be like, did, that, did they honestly introduce me as, like, a woman, a comedian? Like, did that really just happen? <laughs> like, um, and I find, I'm going to get in trouble, but I find that in the, in the, at least the Toronto scene, like, if you're a woman and you sort of say publicly that, you know, men aren't very nice in the comedy scene, immediately a bunch of guys will be like, well, there's two sides of the story. And you're like, mm. no, just sit down and listen for, like, a second, you know? Right. So there's a there's a real backlash uh, from male comics uh, to, like, any female comic that wants to criticize the scene at all from mm. that perspective. Why do you think that female comedians, comedians that are female, I should say, get introduced introduced that way as opposed to like, please welcome your fa- your favorite and my favorite black comedian, your favorite <laughs> and my favorite gay comedian. Why do, why do you get, please, we have a female comedian, her I name is Diana Bailey. I don't know. Like, I think, I think sometimes you get on stage and you, you know, I'll give some people the benefit of the doubt. Like, they get on stage, you get nervous, you just you know word vomit something mm-hmm. uh and then it ends up being like and the next i i got introduced once uh at a show and they literally said the next comedian is really funny even though she's a woman <laughs> oh my Jeez. goodness and Allie. i was like i don't know how to this is a, a losing oh, battle is... from the start <laughs> yeah. right? like, so one time i was uh i was doing a comedy competition in brampton in a in a plaza that had a porn store and a restaurant called Fish Bar, and so I was doing a contest called Brampton's Funniest Comic, and so my set went really well, and the judges really liked me, and they they tabulated all the votes, and then at the end of the night, uh, I had come in runner up, and so the uh, the guy who was announcing all the results was the headliner for the night, the professional comedian headliner who's going to go on for 20 minutes at the end and uh he's he announces my name and he says and the runner-up is diana bailey uh she looks like she gives head like i bet she's really good at giving head i bet that she's got like uh ridges in the back of her head from giving so much head and all these people like in the room are looking at me like trying to gauge my reaction and i was like i don't like what do you what do you do? You are either the person that like is like super weirded out or like makes a scene and makes the whole night awkward for everybody, or you have to like play it off or whatever. Mm. So I was like, uh, uh, and I was like pretty new to stand up at that point, and uh, that was the same night that I had been introduced with uh, 
and our next comedian is very funny, even though she's a woman. Right. By like, the same guy? Uh, no, two different guys. I was like, what a <sighs> what a winning evening for Good. me. And he was saying this as I like almost won something, you know? It was like so absurd to me that you think that that's an okay way to talk about people. And I didn't even talk about like dirty stuff in my set at all. I also yeah. just don't get it. Like, is unwarranted. that a joke? Like, what's the joke? I, I don't know. How, how much laughter occurred in the room? Not much. Okay. Because it's no. just not funny, even like being offensive aside. It's just not a funny joke. Like, I don't get it. No. And I was just so horrified. That That sounds terrible. Yeah. So that's what it's like. Thanks for coming in today, Diana. Thank you for having me. It's not unreasonable to say that documentaries as we understand them today would be different if it wasn't for Albert Maisel's and his brother, David. The two are perhaps best known for Gimme Shelter, which followed the Rolling Stones all the way to Altamont, and Grey Gardens, a simple, beautiful film about two everyday women. They were essential figures in the direct cinema movement. You know the feeling of being a fly on the wall as you watch a rare, fleeting, beautiful moment in a film? Well, that's mostly thanks to Albert and David Maisel's. Albert passed away at the age of 88 in March, but he was working right until the end. His new film is called Iris, and it's about the 93-year-old fun-loving style maven, Iris Apfel. Here's a clip. I didn't give a damn about going to the party or being at the party. It was getting dressed for the party. And there's truth and poetry in that. Joining on the phone today is Rebecca Mazels, Albert's daughter and a producer on Iris. Thanks for joining us, Rebecca. Sure, sir. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, so, we, uh, so we watched Iris. Iris comes out, uh, I believe, this week, right? I think so. It's been so crazy in the States. I, I know that it played <laughs> at um, Hot Docs, and so, yes. Yeah, and, and so what was it that made uh, Iris Apfel such a compelling character for you guys? Um, I think that she's just a really hardworking, focused, creative person, and so for us that's really exciting. I mean, I think that the films that Maisel has made over the years aren't really... I mean, it's not like, you know, it's kind of like a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's celebrities and sometimes it isn't. So um, I think with, with that, you know, I, it doesn't mean that someone has to be, you know, doing brain surgery. Yeah. Or, I mean, it's just that I think she was really creative and really interesting and really open and very hardworking. And I think that that was something that was exciting and inspirational to all of us working on it. Do you think in a way the film shows a softer side of the fashion industry? Because I think most people equate fashion as being kind of snobbish or hard to break into and part so much of iris's personality is just this openness and and she just loved shopping for interesting vintage pieces and it was sort of all in good fun and she even says at one point in the film that she never judges other people openly on their fashion choices and that it's sort of um just a a means for creative expression and not judgment so what do you think about that well, I don't really know the fashion industry that well. And I think, and so, I mean, so I, I think Iris is really creative and really open. And I think that if she's a part of the fashion industry, she's definitely rare in the way that she is and in her kind of process. So I think that it, from what little I know about the fashion industry, it would be really amazing if there were more people like her. I do think that there are quite a few people like her, but I just think that she's a little bit, different where she does fashion but she you know she also just has like a life that she lives and it happens to be that a lot of people are really interested in that so i mean for me i don't 
I don't, I don't really know that much about the fashion world, and so I don't think of the film as a fashion film at all. I think mm-hmm. of it as a portrait film that's about a woman who is 93 and who works really hard. And, you know, I think that my father's in it a little bit, and at the time, you know, he was in his late 80s, and he was working really hard. So for me, I don't equate it as a fashion film. I just I, I think that it's about hardworking people. And so I think that what people are excited about Iris when they meet her is that she is really open and she doesn't really have an ego and she is as open to enjoying some kids like jean jacket as she is some like high couture jacket you know I think that that is really wonderful and if that can be seen as inspirational fashion I think it's great because you know it should be accessible for everyone yeah what really um struck me in the movie is the love story that she has with her husband who is I think he turns 100 in the film they've got married in 1948 they've been together obviously a very long time and they never had children right so they influenced each other quite a lot over the years what was it like to watch those two kind of feed off each other in the story of Iris it was awesome yeah, I bet it, was. <laughs> it was great I mean they really love each other they work well he's extremely supportive um, it was really, really nice. And, you know, they bicker, but they bicker about kind of funny things. And I think it was really exciting. You know, I mean, Iris runs many businesses, but she also takes care of Carl. And she, you know, taking care of someone who's 100 is a lot of work also. Yeah. And managing health insurance and all that kind of stuff is an insane amount of work. So for me, my favorite parts are at home and Iris and Carl together. I mean, those are my favorite kind of moments of working on the film and the moments that are in the film. Yeah, it's an amazing love story. And um, speaking of of twosomes, what was it like to watch Iris, who this outlier, this rebel, and um, your dad, who's also kind of in that category? How what was like to watch these two contend with each other? They were great. I mean, they really enjoyed being in each other's presence. So they really they kind of um, enjoyed it. I think they both had kind of like mutual respect for each other. I think Iris really, she didn't know him and didn't really know his work, but she was influenced by her friends, and her friends told her how good he was. Mm -hmm. And I think that she really respected that, and I think that they both had, like, um, they had a lot of respect for each other, and they had a lot of trust in in each other that they were going to do, you know, that she was going to be an interesting subject and that he was going to be a good filmmaker. And so I think that there was kind of a nice back and forth. And... I mean, I probably, you know, one of the things that I love is that most of the shoots, you know, they're dub- at least double the age of everybody, mm-hmm. at least. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, I, like, well, there's one part that I really love where, like, Iris is standing outside of the hotel and there's she's talking about how she gets tired sometimes and she's just surrounded by, like, basically kids. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, she's going to a party with my dad and, you know... <laughs> It's all like weird kids and bloggers and who knows what. And I just, that for me was pretty amazing, but also pretty brave. You know, I love that shot of her outside because I kind of felt like she was a little bit shy, Mm. but that's what she does. And she goes and she does that. And I love watching them work with B together. And they really enjoyed kind of being each other's presence. You sort of hinted at it earlier, but there was that moment where, you know, uh, Iris introduces uh, everybody to like the film crew that's around her. And it's like, oh, this is the Albert Mazels. And I thought that was uh, yeah. that was kind of awesome. And it felt like it's something that uh, maybe you had a part in because, you know, in a way this was uh, was, was this Albert's last film. Um, he was working. He worked on two films. I mean, he worked on two films. He worked on this film and another film called right. In Transit. Mm-hmm. 
um, that just premiered at Tribeca. So they were kind of, Iris was a film that he, that, that took four years to make and Transit took a year to make. Mm. So he was working on them for some time at the same time. So they're both kind of, I mean, I think that this, like, technically Iris is the last Maisel's film. And then the, um, in Transit kind of came from his nonprofit. So it was a Maisel Documentary Center film, but they're both films that he, you know, had a very heavy hand in and stuff. Yeah, and it does feel like that. It does feel like The Last Maisel's Film in the sense that it is this kind of treatise on mortality. I mean, you have uh, two people uh, who are sort of in the in the twilight of their lives, but they're still working uh, every day. And these are people who, like, clearly love work. I mean, that's that's sort of what Iris talks yeah. about, like, that she is fueled by work. And, and no question, I mean, Albert, to the end of his life, was working on two films. I mean, that's... Uh, no, amazing. Yeah, how much of that... Uh, I mean, he was, like, filming, like, he was filming a month before he died. I yeah. mean, he's really... I want to talk a little bit about his legacy. I mean, what 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 sort of legacy do you think he leaves behind for people who may not uh, be familiar with his work, but sort of watch documentaries? What do you think is his legacy? I mean, I think that I would hope that people who are making documentaries, it seems like there's a lot more documentaries out there and it's more attractive to make documentaries and they're more and more commercial. And I, you know, I would hope, I don't know. I mean, I think that when I watch Iris and I watch In Transit and I watch his films, there's something that's very particular to him in the past is particular to him and his brother but there's something that really has a type of soul and a feeling of empathy and understanding and openness um in the way that you made films and so i would hope that that would be the legacy i mean for us the legacy is to keep you know the films and keep his his library strong and then he started a nonprofit called Maisel Documentary Center, which does educating, you know, works on education programs with teaching people how to make films and has really amazing screenings and, how, you know, really has this idea that everyone should have access to being storytellers and in whatever way that is. So, I mean, I think that, you know, his legacy is all different, different things. But, you know, I also think that there is no one like him. And, you know, I don't think that there could be. You know, he's his own individual, and there's a certain feeling. Maybe it's for me, it's very close to him passing away, but there's a certain feeling that's really him. But I hope people take from it kind of understanding that when you go into a film, it's not about trapping someone, and it's not about catching them, and it's also not about necessarily like this big moment, like aha moment. It's just about living, and Mm. by watching people live, you can learn a lot from it. You know, I mean, I think that for us, like when we were making Iris, you know, there isn't a moment where you find out that she has like an illegitimate child or, you know what I mean? There's like Mm -hmm. nothing that happens. That's, that's kind of like, I don't know where she breaks down, but she just lives. And I think you learn a lot about her and you learn about her vulnerabilities too, but it's, you know, it's more just by watching her work and interact with people. You just learn about, learn about her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if, if there's anyone who knows what, what a great story is, it's, I mean, it's Albert Mazel's. Did he ever, do you have any, (laughs) do you have any, uh, thoughts on did your dad ever pass on any ideas of you know what is it that that not that essential thing that makes a great story no he never did but i overheard him do an interview really close to him passing away with some kind of um very technical magazine like a camera magazine and they asked him about the way that he would shoot and he would say well you know i have one eye in the lens and one eye on the room Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I never really knew that. And I was like, oh, that totally makes sense because he was really aware of like what was happening in the moment, but also like what was happening around him. So, I mean, just hearing him kind of talk about thinking that way was exciting to mm-hmm. me. 
Right. Well, well, thanks so much, Rebecca, for uh, joining us. Sure. Sure. Thank thanks for having me. After eight years and seven seasons, Mad Men came to an end on May 17th. Uh, it's just the latest prestige series to come to a conclusion. In the last two years, Breaking Bad, How I Met Your Mother, Justified, and Parks and Recreation, among others, all came to high-profile ends. And Mad Men's Matt Weiner was once a writer on The Sopranos, arguably the show that started it all, and whose ending is still being discussed to this very day. So we wanted to talk about endings. And let's start by talking about that Mad Men ending. Uh, Julia, what did you think? Yeah, I thought it was a very satisfying ending. It ends with uh, Don in some hippie group therapy uh, in California. And I I really like that it showed that a man like Don Draper, who lived a an inauthentic life of denial and self-medication sprinkled with um, the illusion of control. Uh, it ended not only by um, everyone around him no longer falling for that Don Draper charm, but that Don had this emotional breakdown and required some kind of therapy to move forward because, of course, like, I mean, of course, that's how a man like that living that kind of life was going to end up. I mean, that or suicide. And I thought that um, creatively it was like a really brave choice for them to choose therapy instead of suicide for this character because Mm -hmm. he's kind of like the archetypal old fashioned, like I went to war kind of a man who doesn't think perhaps that therapy can help or that it's like full of quacks or something. So I, and I also found it um, satisfying, satisfying rather that the very clever uh, climactic scene of this episode where it looks like Don Draper is about to have this immense cathartic release um, by revealing all of his secrets in group therapy. Uh, but another man gets up instead, this kind of like wet noodle type who reveals that he feels really like ineffectual and invisible to those around him in his life. And he describes that life did not give him what he uh, hoped for, which then stirs something in Dawn and and uh, who is, of course, the opposite of ineffectual and invisible to those around him. And he f- and Dawn finds out that he feels just the same way, though they took different paths. They end up in the same place. And that kind of makes that the there's a light bulb moment for Don where he realizes that he's not actually a special snowflake at all. He's just like everybody else with the same fears and desires and all that. And it ends with the viewer assuming that he's found the sense of empathy and purpose because of this realization. I mean, if you're an optimist, but you never really know, really. But that ending is open for interpretation, uh, which is a, a Matthew Weiner specialty. And it ends with Dawn sitting in in group there meditating and then it flips over to this very famous uh, Coca-Cola commercial from the early 70s that I, I'd like to buy the world a Coke and you're meant to think did he make this ad uh, or it, or did he leave advertising forever and mm-hmm. it's just a coincidence it's it's open-ended and that's uh, something else I appreciate about sure. the show it's open-ended ish uh, he he did actually do uh, he said that he was going to speak like once ever on the, on the finale and it did say that like that yes Don, Don did make uh, did make the coke ad that was, was an insinuation. Um, I guess what I mean by open-ended-ish is like, it was he just yeah. cynically trying to mine That's right. the, that therapy session for ideas yeah. or did he actually have a real human person-like moment and then also decided to be an ad man and a good person mm-hmm. realizing that the, those two things are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Right. Yeah, and I so I agree with you. I, I thought the ending, you know, I had been watching every episode over the course of the last uh, the last season for, for McLean's doing this panels uh, and I thought that uh, the Don Draper story was always going to be the toughest one to figure out and the assumption was that he was going to fall, that he was going to die, maybe he was going to be D.B. Cooper and I'm very grateful that he didn't die. Uh, I think that it would have been, frankly, a cop-out uh, for a show that has never been about major 
moments in the traditional sense. I, I spoke to uh, Matt Weiner. He talked about the fact that, you know, the criticism of the show is often that he, it was never, there was not a lot of, like, movement and stuff and, like, whatever. But he sees that as being, he saw it as being a very action-packed film in the sense, or very action-packed TV series in the sense that, um, you know, over the course of a life, you see, you know, it's important when, you know, you go through a divorce. It's important when uh, you're caught in flagrante with, uh, you know, the neighbor upstairs by your child. Uh, you know, there are all these things that don't feel like traditional uh, like bloody, you know, deaths or whatever, but, you know, you lose a job. That's a huge thing in life. Um, so I, I felt that Dawn's, uh, Dawn's piece really, really nailed it for me. That part of the ending was great. I did find a lot of the rest of the finale to to be a little wanting and surprising. I thought it was odd that Stan and Peggy got together. That felt like a real uh, cop-out to the fans. It really felt like, uh, oh, the fans really wanted this, uh, so I guess we'll give them to them, which is great. You know, we're going to wrap up all those bows. Um, and But it just felt too neat and for a show that was never really about neatness. Uh, there was a There was a kind of uh, over neatness to it. And and that's what I want to talk here about endings too. Uh, and maybe you can jump in, Emma. Uh, you know, there's different kinds of endings for different kinds of shows that work in different kinds of ways. Um, you know, we have TV sh- a TV show like, say, Breaking Bad, where it did kind of wrap everything up neatly. And that was, uh, some would agree that that was extremely satisfying. The fact that we knew uh, the basically what happened to every single one of those characters, where they lived, they died, they got away. Um, you know, and then, or you had one like The Sopranos, which, uh, you know, I think I think it's pretty clear. But, you know, the fact is, uh, you know, David Chase, the creator of the show, still will not say exactly what happened to it. Um, you know, even with like How I Met Your Mother, which is not like your traditional drama people. There's a lot of division on like how a show should end. Is there a way to r- truly make people happy when when a show ends? I don't think there is. I mean, even though I've you guys are saying that you enjoyed the Mad Men finale and I really liked the Sopranos finale, which was also controversial. I feel like both of those finales were actually derided, largely. Why did you like that finale? I don't know. I just, (laughs) I can't explain it. I just thought it was, you know, I I think I liked it in part because there really is no good way to end things usually. Mm -hmm. And so maybe the open-endedness of it worked. Um, And I think that maybe shows like, the Sopranos and Mad Men, as you said, aren't um, bound to these cheap plot devices or plot twists like some other TV shows are. They're sort of longer. The storylines are drawn out. The characters are more developed. Maybe um, you those shows have the privilege or, or not the privilege, mm-hmm. but they there's easier opportunity to have an open-ended ending on a show like that. Um, whereas when you have a show like Lost mm. or any kind of sci-fi related, like Battlestar Galactica or, or any of those really popular sci-fi shows that really depend or are centered around a big mystery, it's really hard to end shows like that because it's almost always a guarantee that the however the mystery is solved, whatever the answer is, will be far less interesting than the mystery itself. And I think that happened definitely with Lost and mm-hmm. I thought with Battlestar Galactica, which I won't spoil, but mm-hmm. what do you guys think? Well, I think that? it's it's that it's that tension between uh, what a creator wants and what the fans want, right? And any successful show will have this problem. That's why we're talking about these in specifics because these are some of the most popular shows of our time, you know, the Losts and your How I Met Your Mothers and I guess Mad Men and Breaking Bad. Uh, it becomes a point where there is a there's a real tension on what it is that the showrunner and the creator wants, which is like 100% that person's right to do. I'm you know I'm gonna end the show the way I want to versus uh, 
you know, years of following a show and then be- deciding, hey, this is like what I want to happen. Uh, Breaking Bad, I think, is often seen as this very this great success because it does, uh, in so many ways, give the fans g- gave the fans what it wanted, gave the fans what they wanted, right? And the fans felt like they owned that show the way that they do still. They did still with with Mad Men. I mean, the in the lead up, there was this belief that. Um, uh, Don Draper was going to be D.B. Cooper, this uh, man who, this real life story of a person who jumped off a plane after hi- uh, hijacking it and, and grabbing just thousands of dollars. Uh, and there are a lot of people who are disappointed by that. Whereas, you know, uh, you know, Matt Weiner said that he that was never the plan and he was going to end it his way. Um, it is that sort of tension between, uh, you know, what a fan believes that they own versus. Well, maybe the future is in choose your own adventure endings. <laughs> Maybe that's what people will start the doing. The internet? Who knows? Yeah. One season finale will be Don Draper jumping out of an airplane, and in the other one, he'll be doing yoga. I don't think that that's such a crazy idea, <laughs> to be honest, because I think that in terms of the ele- uh, evolution of television, you know, it used to be that the formula was to give everybody a happy ending because that's what everybody wanted, mm-hmm. the classic Shakespeare ending, A Laugh in a Marriage. And, um, and I think the expectations of viewers have changed a lot because you know you we once always thought that our favorite characters were safe so for example in the fir- at the end of the first season of game of thrones they killed the lead characters and and people are like wow you can't do that like that's not the formula of television because it used to be for example mash was the uh series finale was the most watched television broadcast ever it it came out in 1983 like i mean ever ever until um the super bowl 2010 um uh, the Bob Newhart show from the 80s where Bob Newhart runs an inn in Vermont ended with the Bob Newhart from his show in the 70s waking up and pretending that the second series yeah. was all a dream, yeah. you know, and it's just like, oh, that's clever. And with the mash ending, like I said, like it was a lot of sentimentality, hugs, goodbye, the war is over, I'll never forget you. But then with new television series, like the ones that we've experienced in the past 10 years, it's not always a, a, a rainbow. Ned Stark, for example, um, getting killed in the wire when that series don't finale. tell me i oh please don't tell me okay i'm really into the wire and fair I'm enough thanks i'll jump to the sopranos when everybody was like is he gonna get is is uh, tony soprano gonna get whacked or not he's always been the the whacker or is he gonna be the wacky and then it just ends and you don't know and i think that and i think matthew weiner had a, a hand in that last scene as well of, in sopranos and and the same with Mad Men. there's an ambiguity and i think the point with that is that unlike the way that shows used to end before where it was more about um, a narrative, these shows are more like, that's not how life is. Sometimes mm-hmm. you don't yeah. know what the answer is. Yeah. Sometimes not everybody gets a happy ending and a, and a kiss and a marriage. Like Sometimes it's it's just not going to be what you want because that's how life kind of works. Yeah. So I don't know. I disagree. It. I think that it is totally a cop-out to end things that way. I think it's a bit lazy. Why? But I... Because it's it, it is like you're leaving things open ended. It is because you think the viewer not. deserves a, a final answer that says something more than just something. No, ambiguous? I don't think the viewer deserves that because I know as a viewer that I wouldn't be happy with whatever <laughs> with whatever came to be. Like the endings are really really hard, and so I do think it's a cop out, but I think it's almost like an understandable one that I can forgive. A hundred percent. I agree with Julia just to, just to tie that off. I think, I think, uh, Mad Men is the perfect example of it because that, that show really was so much about, well, life just goes on. Uh, and you know, I think that's the perfect, uh, example to talk about endings because, uh, life does goes on. There, there is just no, there's no easy way to tie a bow on this, the reality of like 
time progressing. And I think that Breaking Bad is also a hilarious example of what you were saying about alternative endings because uh, I remember also they released a, a sort of funny uh, ending video where Walt uh, wakes up and ends up it was Brian Cranston's character from Malcolm in the Middle. Just like Bob up, Newhart. Yeah, exactly. Just like the Bob <laughs> Newhart thing. Being like, oh my God, it was just a dream. And <laughs> it's, it's kind of perfect. I would so, have preferred that ending. Yeah. Well, that's it for this week. Find new episodes every Friday at mcclains.ca and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and BeyondPod. We'd love it if you wrote us like a review or a comment on iTunes, or if you'd like, you can tell us your thoughts about what we talked about with a comment on our site. If you like this, make sure to check out our politics podcast on the Hill, or our books podcast, The Bibliopod. You can also hear some of our columnists, like our very own Emma Title, read their work in McLean's Voices. All three of those are on iTunes and Stitcher. Our theme song is by Young Clancy. You can follow Emma on Twitter at Emma Rose Title. You can follow Julia at Julia Del J. Uh, and you can follow me at Adrian K. Lee. Thanks for listening, and we'll play you out to the comedy music stylings of Diana Bailey. Who's the guy who's always giving you snacks, but tells black people to pull up their bootstraps? It's Grandpa. Grandpa. Turns on Sesame Street, but says PBS sucks taxpayer teed. It's Grandpa, Grandpa. Your grandpa is a mean old guy. We're all kind of waiting for him to die so we can make this big old world a better place. So don't trust him with your candy and don't trust him on election day. says you should share your toys but thinks Obama's turning us into Hanoi it's grandpa grandpa he says you can be anything one day but still won't believe Cary Grant was gay that's grandpa grandpa your grandpa is a mean old guy we're all kind of waiting for him to die or at least get a spot of angina that changes his life so don't trust him with your candy or around your multiracial friends. But accept his birthday cards and the money that is stuffed in them. And donate it to abortion.